It's the journey we're on and all of the little things that happen on the way to our goals that really make the difference. We're going to continue with the pursuit. Welcome back, pursuers, to another episode of Pursuing the Process, where we dive into the stories that really shape who we are, because as we all know, it's the process more than the destination that creates the lives we experience. Todd, good to be back here with you. How are you today? Good, sir. You too, my man. That was a very polished intro you just gave there. You're really getting good at this thing. <laughs> I don't know about that, but thank you. I'll take it. I'll take it. Nicely done. Nicely done. Yeah, it's good to be back, brother. I love uh, catching up with you as usual, and uh, we got a cool episode for everybody today. Oh, we absolutely do. Interesting guest. And he's quite well-traveled. I think that's a theme that a lot of our pursuers can relate to is just travel and the element and roles it plays in our lives. When you think about travel, you've clearly been traveling a lot lately. I mean, I know you've Iceland, RV trips, you name it. Yeah. But when you think about travel on a broader scope, what does that really mean to you in your life? Yeah, you know, I've reflected on that a lot, especially during COVID and the impact that COVID has had on people's abilities to travel and to get out and see different parts of the country or different parts of the world. You know, I grew up in a family that, um, you know, our, our big trip every year was down to Florida from Wisconsin. And so I didn't have a lot of international experience. I didn't see a lot uh, outside of, you know, the, the country's borders. And, you know, I, I think it was really my wife, Heidi, who turned me on to that and, and her uh, desire to get outside the country. And she traveled all, all through Europe after college and done a number of other cool trips really exposed me to some incredible experiences. And I really think that has changed my worldview and my perspective on life. I know we talked to Chris Stewart about that a little bit, about getting outside your context. And uh, I absolutely believe in that. And it's done it for me. I'd say you know, we've taken a lot of fun international trips, as you said, lately, finally getting a little bit out of our bubble here, you know, getting down to Mexico and out over to Iceland. Those are some amazing times. Um, you know, I think about just the adventure and the sense of learning and the sense of newness that that happens and that was really an eye-opener for me in Iceland just reaffirmation of how important that has been in my life and in Heidi's life and you know mm -hmm. I mean I think about an awesome trip we took to Argentina one time and um, the country is an amazing place and I learned a couple things about Argentinians number one um, it's a highly sophisticated very like European kind of culture lots of history lots of passion around the country and second thing I learned is those dudes know how to party and um, <laughs> I remember meeting a local and uh, she took us out the last night we were in Argentina. We were there for like 11 days. And uh, man, they love their Fernet and Coke and they love to dance. And it was the most amazing nightlife that I've ever experienced in my life. I thought I knew how to party in Wisconsin. Dude, those Argentinians got uh, a little bit up on us. So I, I thought it was uh, such a memorable time. But I know, John, you also have spent a lot of time traveling, especially now you're living on the West Coast. So, you know, what's it meant for you to be in a new place? Oh, God, it's, I'm reflecting on the stories you just told there. One, I have to ask, what is Fernet and Coke? What, what's Fernet? <clears throat> so Fernet is a, um, I think it's an Ital Italian or French liqueur, but it's, it's very herbal. It's very drink. dark. Yes, it's an, it's a, usually it's like a digestif, they call it. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> it's usually used to help with digestion after, after eating. They mix it with Coke and they slam those things like it's going out of style. So, yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So that sparked something, actually. And it is what I was thinking, because San Francisco, the Fernet salespeople yes. back in the day, yes. they ran ship over here in San Francisco. So it's the local bartender drink. So if you go into a bar 
and order mm-hmm. a shot of that, they'll look at yeah. you like, oh, where do you bartend? It's actually <laughs> become a staple. But I think well, it's disgusting. I think it's you're, absolutely You're gnarly. absolutely right on both both accounts. The only other place I've seen in the U.S. is in San Francisco. And uh, the only place I've seen it. And uh, it, it is disgusting. Um, in fact, it's even, <laughs> uh, i tell you, uh, I know this is kind of inside baseball here. It's even more disgusting coming back up than it is going down, just in case you're so you really got drank under the table by the Argentinians. Oh, baby. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. That's but it. I think of travel as a whole. And right now, especially while well, I'm young right now, so much is figuring out the world around me. And it's a continuous process. I don't think that's just strictly a young thing. But there's something about being mid-20s where you figure out what you like, where you want to spend your time, what places you enjoy. Yep. And so much of that for me comes from travel. I've seen it be such a mind expander of sorts where – Growing up, it was vacations. And I would view it as, oh, I get to go to a beach. I get to go to a warm location. But since then, travel has really shifted and taken different shapes because it is about the cultures and the people you meet along the way. For yep. me, one of my favorite things is actually just going in and experiencing what a local does for their everyday life there. Whether it's going to a park, whether it's a shop, whether it's just bring me into your world and let me see what that's like. Rather than, hey, see the touristy monuments. Of course, there's some beautiful things and they're touristed for a reason. But travel just, it's a part of who I am as a person. Like I really would itch and go crazy without travel and being able to experience different places and new people. Well, you're absolutely right. And that's the, that's why I brought up the Argentinian experience because I felt like a local, like I felt like I got a real view into what life is like for people there and, you know, just how important certain aspects of their life are and, and how different it can be from what, what we experience up here. Oh, so true. And as we talk about our travel stories, pursuers, I know you're out there, you've had a lot of travel experiences. We'd love to hear some of your highlights, takeaways, thoughts on travel. So please hit us up if you have any thoughts. We'd love to hear from you as well. And on pursuing the process today, we are fortunate to have Cannon Winkler. He's a self-taught visual artist working out of Arizona. Cannon has released his first series of artwork done from animal footprints from South Africa and is actually getting ready to go on a second trip over to Congo. Cannon is an artist, an entrepreneur, a conservationist, and his work is helping raise awareness and funds for environmental conservation around the world. Now, Cannon, I know this is a little bit different for people to quite understand. So in your own words, what the heck do you do? <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you, John. Um, first off, it's thanks for having me. It's an absolute honor to be here with you guys tonight. Well, you don't know that yet. We'll see how it goes. I don't know if you're going to feel that way at the end of this or not. The night is still young. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so essentially what I do is I try to create artwork to connect people with some of our last remaining wild places. And I do that by collecting footprints from the wild, um, from real animals. And I use those to create these large uh, acrylic paintings there almost like uh, mosaic or geometric in pattern. Um, and yeah, my, my really my goal with that is to help people have some kind of connection to these places because I really feel like uh, having a connection to these places is the first step towards caring about them and protecting them. Talk about the origins of the art a little bit, Canon. How, how, did, how did you decide that was going to be your style and kind of concept? Yeah, I mean, it really happened pretty organically. Um, You know, it all started when I was training to be a safari guide in South Africa. And COVID-19 hit in 2020. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, safaris weren't happening anymore. So I had to start looking at, okay, well, really, what am I doing over here? How can I utilize this time where, uh, you know, at the time, I was basically locked down in one of the game reserves there. 
Um, so, you know, I, I just finished a tracking course, getting uh, my tracker certification, which is part of the, the safari guide training. Um, and I remember looking at this rhino print. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen a rhino track, but it looks really like something alien. You know, they've got three toes. The first toe is just, you know, absolutely massive. Uh, and then two like little toes on the side. And I was thinking, you know, I never would have believed something had a footprint like this. And I was thinking there's, you know, to me, it was beautiful. And I thought there's, you know, most people have never seen this before. And there's just this elaborate, I don't know, just something elaborate and organic about it that I wanted to share with other people. So that's really where it came from is starting to think, okay, well, how can I share some of this wildlife with other people who maybe don't have that opportunity to go and see that in nature? Mm. It clearly stems from a deeper root system though. Cause even before you started the artwork style from animal prints, you said you were trained to be a safari guide. You were tracking. What do you think is the intrinsic motivation? Why do you feel so connected to nature and wildlife? Oh man. I mean, that, that goes back to when I was a small child, there's home videos of me, uh, you know, telling my parents, I don't need to learn how to read. I just need to learn how to survive in the woods. Um, you know, when I was young, I think my heroes were Jane Goodall and Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. Oh yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always had this connection to nature. And I think some people are like that, you know, some people just are born with that connection. And, uh, you know, I'd really like to help the ones that maybe weren't born with that, or maybe just forgot it, you know, help them get back to that. I did uh, read that. I did read that quote you had in, in an article. We were reading in anticipation for this, where you told your mom at age five that you didn't need to learn to read. You know, all you needed to do is learn to survive in the wilderness. And as a dad of a five-year-old, I some days wish my kid would go out in the wilderness. So, um, <laughs> and maybe decide to live out there for a while. But uh, no, it, it clearly speaks to your connection with, with nature. Can you talk a little bit about also the role that travel has played in your experiences and exposure to different parts of the world and how that's kind of played in to your connection with nature as well? Yeah. You know, um, you know, I was very fortunate as a, as a young kid, my family really prioritized travel and making times for trips uh, with both me and my sister. So from a young age, I was, uh, you know, traveling to a lot of different destinations. And uh, I think that once you get into that habit, that's just, it's hard to drop. You know, if I stay in one place for over a year, I start to feel like, well, something's wrong. You know, I, I need to get out and, and see and touch new stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think from being a young kid, even places locally like Hawaii, I would see sometimes how they would change from the first time I went to the last time I went. And I think, well, you know, why, why is that changing? Um, and yeah, so I, I, that's kind of my first awareness of, you know, something, something might be going on here that I need to do something about. And outside of the familial travel, you also had a gap year, I believe it was after high school. Can you talk about that year and just your experiences throughout? Yeah. So, um, you know, after I graduated high school, um, I really wasn't sure what direction I wanted to take. You know, I was kind of deciding between zoology or a business degree. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I should take some time and actually experience the world to figure this out. So when I graduated, I had an internship with the Humane Society of the United States. They sent me to this rural game reserve in uh, Oregon, actually. <laughs> and uh, so you can imagine, you know, I'm 18 years old completely alone on this reserve for a summer, uh, just looking at grass. 
Um, so there was a lot of contemplation that went in there, I think at a fairly young age, uh, you know, cause when you're alone that long, any problem you have with yourself, you have to address. So you have to learn how to enjoy your own company because that's it. You just, that's you, that's all you've got. Um, so I, I think I started thinking about a lot of this stuff and my place in the world at, at about that age. And then from there, you know, I did, I guess a good job of, of cataloging grasses because, <laughs> uh, they helped give me a, a couple of connections to some other projects. So, you know, I was in Guatemala um, volunteering at a sea turtle hatchery. Um, I got to go to Nepal where I was doing a little bit of camera trap work in the Himalayas. Um, and then at the end, I, I went to a wildlife sanctuary in Namibia. So I was raising baboons and, you know, feeding lions and cheetahs and stuff. And that one, to be honest, was maybe... Um, you know, they, they call them like a volunteer trap where it's maybe a little bit more of a, a volunteer zoo than real conservation work. But it was still at the time I didn't know that. So I was just happy to be playing with monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> when you're spending the time by yourself in Oregon, where yeah. did you realize your mind wandering and how did you start to process just some of these internal, whether it be beasts or dreams that you had? Where did you see your mind going? You know, I, I actually I love that question, um, you know, because I'm a big believer of, you know, the if you're trying to figure out what you should do in your life, observe yourself in a vacuum. You know, when people are not influencing you and what you're doing, just watch what you do and what you are naturally inclined towards. And for me, it's as soon as I ran out of books to read, I just started making stuff. You know, I, I started, you know, weaving grass into rope and bracelets and, you know, putting together little like kind of diorama villages out of, uh, you know, rocks. I was making spears and bows and fishing rods and, my, my natural inclination was just to make stuff. Um, and so I think having that realization from a young age, I realized, you know, that's, that's kind of the core of who I am and what I can do. I had an instant visual of Tom Hanks and Castaway as you're going through this. So <laughs> how, how did you not go like, you know, like just nuts by yourself? I mean, was, was that therapeutic for you or were there times where I was like, <clears throat> I need human or where you were like, I need human interaction? Um, I think it was a little bit of both, to be honest. There are definitely times I remember, you know, uh, now that you mention it, I, so I made a fishing rod. I was super happy. I made this fishing rod cause I had, you know, uh, rope that I made from grass and, you know, I made it actually have that, uh, the spool so you could reel it in and everything. Yep. So I went to the Creek to go fishing for like a couple hours, except I, I knew that there were no fish in this Creek. I just like, <laughs> you know, cause I was thinking like, well, sometimes you go fishing and you don't catch anything and it's still fun to go fishing. Uh, <laughs> it'll just be one of those times. And that's after that, I kind of, I kind of sat there and I was like, you know, I should probably get out soon. I, I need to yeah. talk to <laughs> Next thing you know, you'll be talking to volleyballs, dude. That, that's when you know it's all downhill. Oh um, man, I wish I had a volleyball. <laughs> uh, so, so John did talk a little bit about, you know, kind of your decision-making and that gap year that you had. You also mm -hmm. did an internship in corporate America and got an opportunity to pursue a business path. Just talk about the evaluation process. I know you, you said there's a lot of self-reflection involved, but you know, like the business route, you could, you could be a corporate stiff like I was for 20 years and uh, <laughs> thank God you weren't because um, I can tell you there's probably more to life than that. Sorry, John, I know you're going down that road too. So we, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save you dude. At some point we'll save you from, from being me 20 years from now. But I mean, how did, how did you decide to take a path less traveled? The easy route to me would have been go to go to take, you know, take the, the business opportunity and maybe do this uh, art as, as a passion project on the side. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, after the gap year, I obviously I studied business, um, 
And at the end of my you know, college degree, I, I had, as you mentioned, the, the choice to go into the corporate world. Um, and to be honest, that was kind of where my mind was headed. Um, I yeah. thought, you know, I still was wanting to be involved in conservation at some point, but my plan was basically go make tons of money. And then when I'm old, I can use that to, you know, help, help the natural world. Um, but kind of just right before I graduated, you know, I was sitting on a couple of these job offers and I could see like my 10 year path in front of me. And I, you know, I, I knew I'd be happy. Like I, I knew I would, you know, have successes and have joys and whatnot, but I could just predict everything that was going to happen to me. You know, I, I knew, okay, well around this age, I'll probably get a promotion. I'll, you know, get a pay raise here. I'll probably move to this city at this age. And actually having that predictability, it scared me a little bit because I thought, you know, I'm only going to be 20 once. Like, why not have an adventure? Why not do something that I don't know I can do? I don't know if I'm going to be successful. Um, and that was a big part of it is picking the thing that scared me. Um, and so I basically turned all the offers down with nothing else, you know, in, in my back pocket, there was, you know, not really any other plans I had. I just knew I wanted to move to Africa. Um, so when I graduated, that's, that's all I had was just this vague plan to move to Africa and, you know, in the months following that, I just was doing research of how I could get there and do something productive and, you know, maybe also uh, pick up some skills along the way. And that's when I found this program where you can go and get certified as a safari guide in South Africa. Uh, that is so gutsy. And I applaud you for that, because I think that's one thing that humans just gravitate toward is certainty. It's such a common thing to want certainty, to seek that out. So for you to decide that you want to go do something that scares you and intentionally be like, no, screw that. I'm going to go an unconventional route and not just an unconventional route, but something that truly scares you speaks to the purpose that you seek in life. And one thing you had mentioned, we were just having a one-off conversation was you wanted to arrive with purpose and you were talking about it in the sense of in Africa. Could mm -hmm. you touch on arriving with purpose and what that means to you, not only in your trip to Africa, but also just in your relationships in life? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting question. I, you know, you had also mentioned something earlier, you know, just about uh, kind of living with intentionality. And I think it's easy to be on autopilot and kind of accept what life gives you and accept what comes your way. And I think there's an art form to that too, of, um, you know, kind of letting go of your resistance to things. But at the same time, you, you want to play an active role in your life and your relationships. I, I notice, especially now that I'm getting older and, you know, I don't necessarily see my friends every day. You know, you have to be intentional with, intentional with the people you care about, um, you know, whether that's romantically or, or friendship. I think that's that's an enormous part of keeping those relationships, especially. I mean, for me, I, I travel a lot. I disappear for months at a time in the wilderness. It's, you know, I, I need to to be very intentional about the people I want to keep in my life. Yeah. And I think that only gets more challenging as uh, you get older and you get to be 43 like me with two kids and. Your time is limited uh, in terms of maintaining connections with people outside your immediate family. And so I think intentionality is is a great thing to be always aware of in terms of its importance and role in your life. And um, I think words of wisdom for even a 43-year-old like me. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did want to delve a little bit more into the kind of your background and your education. So you also spent some time um, studying uh, sales and being involved in um, you know, uh, looking at a future career in, in sales or using sales skills in some form or fashion. So how has that background helped you in what you're doing now in art? Yeah, no, that's, that's actually a great segue because I think that's something that 
a lot of artists, uh, you know, they, they miss out on that a little bit. I, you know, ultimately, if you're creating something really, really wonderful, you still need to get it in front of people. You still need to, That's right. um, you know, know how to present and, and market what you're doing. Um, so I think for me, sales, having that sit background in sales was a huge part of having the confidence to go into something like art. Whereas, you know, there is this connotation of like, oh, you're going to be a starving artist. You know, you're, you're going to kind of, uh, you know, live in squalor for your passion. Mm-hmm. And that was never my intention. Um, you know, my intention was actually to go into this to generate funds, you know, not only for me, but for conservation. So I was using it as a, as a vehicle to, um, you know, create funding. And having that background in sales was absolutely key and just the confidence to make that leap. What about art struck with you? I know you said you saw the rhino print. Was yes. instantly your thought art? Because there's so many ways you could share that with people. You could take pictures. Why do what you're doing now with painting and creating broader awareness around conservation? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just, you know, I think a lot about, you know, what kind of gifts do I have? And, and I think this is for anyone, you know, I think we need to, like a gift is not something that you have for you. It's something that you have that you're supposed to give to the world. You're supposed to give it to other people. And so I think a lot about doing what you can to give what you have. Um, and for me, that's just, that's what I have. That's what I feel like I have to bring to the table is, um, you know, creating something beautiful out of something that didn't exist before. What is the community like in terms of conservation in art? Um, you know, it's growing a lot. Um, I like there are a lot of really big name artists that um, have been very involved in that. And I think that's continuing to grow. So, for example, just some names that come to mind are David Yarrow. He's, um, you know, I think one of the best photographers in the world. Um, he raises a lot of funding for several nonprofit organizations, both in conservation and humanitarian. Um, John Benovich is another one. He's a, a wildlife painter. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's one of those things that it doesn't necessarily come to mind when people think about, you know, fundraising or conservation, but they go hand in hand really well. I mean, even I had a friend who's taking a master's in conservation leadership. He reached out to me because he's taking a class that's specifically focused on art and conservation. Um, so I think it's, it's something that it's a pairing that works really well. Um, and people are realizing that more and more. I'm picturing him taking that course. I know exactly the guy to reach out to. Cam is my guy. <laughs> Art, conservation, we're here for it. <laughs> and I will say there's no such thing as too many questions. When they're deep, courageous questions, I think I've heard a quote once where so much of life is the courage of our questions and the depth of our answers. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Mm-hmm. But you also touched on process and being on pursuing the process as reading into how you create your art and your own process, one of the pieces I find most fascinating is you're actually tracking animals, almost this evolutionary piece of humans is tracking animals in a hunt in a way. Mm-hmm. Can you touch on what that tracking piece is like? Because I think that's so foreign to most of our pursuers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as you mentioned, you know, all of my art starts really in nature. And usually, you know, sometimes I'm tracking for a few days, sometimes it's a few weeks. Um, but typically I'll go out first thing in the morning and I'm just looking for prints. When I was in South Africa, I might have an idea of what was around me because during the night, you know, we're sleeping in tents so you can hear, okay, well, there were lions, you know, about two kilometers over to the north, or, you know, you can maybe hear there were elephants down the riverbed. So you have an idea of what might be there. Um, or, you know, maybe you don't. And so you're just looking for areas like 
water, uh, water holes or roadways that have really fine dusty soil where you can pick up on a trail. Cause a lot of times I'll pick up on the animal trail, but the tracks will be indistinct or animals really like to step into their own footprints. It's something in the tracking world that we call direct register. Um, so basically their back foot goes right into their top foot. And when they do that, a lot of times it can mess both tracks up. So then it's not something I can cast. So basically, you know, I'll follow that trail until it gets to the right soil or sometimes not. Um, but no, it's, it, you can never force something in nature. So it's, it's always a surprise what you find. Um, you know, I, I remember there was a couple times where there was a leopard in the area and I could see his tracks, but it was in really fine sand. So it's not something that I could cast because I, I cast in silicone. So it's not something wet that I can pour in. I've got to basically inject it into the track. So if it's not sturdy soil, it pushes out the track and you just get this big, you know, rubbery blob. Um, and I was following this leopard trail for a couple of days, not, not all at once. I would return to it and try and find it because I knew it was in the area because leopards are territorial. Um, and eventually, you know, I was kind of getting closer and I could tell the tracks were fresher and fresher. And all of a sudden I just became aware that everything was silent. Like there were no, there were no birds calling. There were no bugs moving. Everything was just dead, dead silent. And, you know, the hairs on the back of my neck set up and everything. And I knew he was close. Um, it was a big male that I was tracking. Um, and I was looking around and I, I couldn't see him anywhere. So I decided, okay, well, you know what, I'll go a little bit further and then I'll turn around and I head back. Um, and after I turned, turned around and started heading back, I could see where his tracks were then following my tracks down the road. Um, so at that point where I could feel him and everything went silent, he was actually, I was tracking him and he was tracking me. <laughs> oh. Was that the, was that the time you felt most threatened in the wild or are there other times like that? Is that a common experience? Um, you know, it's, it's not uncommon. I mean, leopards are very, very elusive. So chances are they're if you're in, you know, a place like Africa or South Africa, they're around you a lot more often than you realize. And for that time, you know, it was a little bit freaky, but it's not that I felt threatened just because I knew, you know, I've probably passed him dozens of other times in that area because that's where he lives and he, was totally fine with it well uh, yeah yeah here's my own that's my own na naivete that i would assume that you'd feel threatened because you could have just felt like this was a normal thing because leopards will follow humans at times for other reasons than to prey on them right i mean that's probably not a natural thing it's more curiosity than anything right yeah yeah absolutely i i don't think he was there to prey on me or he didn't have any aggressive behavior i think i was just walking through his territory and he was wanting to see what I was up to. Um, I, I didn't feel that, you know, it was, it was a kind of predatory behavior. Um, but to be honest, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think a lot of people, when they think of Africa, they think of the scary animals being right. the, and lions and hyenas. Um, and really, for me, the, you're much more likely to be in trouble with something like an elephant than you are with, you know, a lion or a leopard. It's, it's the buffaloes and the elephants. Those are the ones that um, you know, my encounters that have put me on edge have been with those animals. Hmm. Is that because they're more aggressive toward humans or why is that? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I don't like to, um, you know, paint any animal as aggressive or, um, you know, innately dangerous, but I mean, with Buffalo, for example, that is kind of their survival strategy is by being, some mean sons of bitches because <laughs> it's it's not like they have a lot of survival strategy other than just being very tenacious and uh you know tough to pick on 
So Buffalo, yeah, they're, to be honest, yeah, I'll, no, I'll be honest. I'm a little bit afraid of Buffalo. Um, <laughs> you can be honest here. I'd yeah, be man. damn scared of a leopard, so. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, yeah, elephants, I'm, I'm not afraid of elephants, but I've, the encounters that have really shook me have, have all been with elephants, just because they're so big, and for them, if they want to move you, they know that they can move you. Um, so that's, yeah, my scary encounters have, have mostly been elephants. You're telling me you don't think you could take an elephant head on? I mean, you could hold your own, maybe. Maybe a baby. <laughs> well, I've, you know, I've had to hold my ground a couple times. Um, I, I've had them, you know, throw branches at me and whatnot. But oh, it's, wow. yeah, it's always a scary event. You know, I, I think you have people that will tell you it's, they try and act like it's not scary. It's everyone I know that has had really close elephant encounters, unless you're one of those super hardened guides that has just, you've seen it all and, you know, punched lions in the face and stuff. If, unless you're one of those really hardened guides, you know, it's, it's a scary encounter. So speaking of being a guide, uh, step us through how you got trained to be a guide in South Africa. You took six months, I believe during kind of the height of co at least the initial phase of COVID. Um, what, what just paint a visual picture for us on what that was like. Basically there's a couple different organizations you can go through to get certified as a safari guide, but it's all done through this national organization called FAGASA. Uh, but my, my training program was called Eco Training, um, very great organization. And essentially we spent six months training in the bush. So you're living in these little eight by eight tents, uh, you know, you're sharing it with another person. So it's, it's pretty cramped quarters, but you get used to it. Um, and you're living on site. So, you know, you have hyenas walk through camp and sniff your tents at night, you wake up, there's elephants feeding over you on the branches. Um, and you're, you're completely immersed. Um, and there's kind of two portions to that. There's your level one, which essentially that's what certifies you to be like the driving guide, you know, so you're in the, the game driving vehicle and you can lead, you know, three hour safaris on a vehicle. And then there's kind of these additional components. So you can get certified as, you know, an advanced birder, you can do your advanced rifle handling, which then will allow you to do your backup trails, which is to be the second guide on a walking safari. Um, and for me, that was by far my favorite part because, you know, driving in the bush is a totally different thing from walking in the bush. Uh, you know, when you see these animals at eye level, that's really where you're, you realize, you know, just how, how big and powerful they are. Um, and just that immersive experience of, you know, getting to touch the termite mounds. There's that for me, I mean, one of the things that I love is the fruit that's, you never mm. think fruits on safari, but at least in the bush belt, there's tons of different wild fruits. So it's like flavors you've never imagined. Uh, it's yeah. So there's all of those kind of tactile experiences to a walking safari, which for me just makes it, uh, you know, some, so much of a richer experience. Was the development for you, understanding how you play in their home territory because it's not it's not your world that the animals are coming into you were walking into theirs and by nature humans are these apex predators we're paranoid we've gotten to where we are in this species for a reason but now you're in you're in away territory how do you interact in their home making sure you're respectful of the animals especially as you're learning of what's right what's not right yeah well that's i mean that's actually kind of the funny thing because um at least in the bushveld you know, that's where the fossil record tells us that we evolved too. So that's really our home as well. So everything in there recognizes you. It knows what you are and it knows where you belong in the food chain. Um, so that's the thing. That's, that's one of the advantages to a driving safari is you can at times get a lot closer to animals because they don't recognize what that silhouette is. 
you know, they see the big vehicle and they, that's new to them. They have to learn how to interact with that. But when they see, you know, the bipedal human silhouette, they know immediately what that is. And as soon as they smell you or see you, um, you know, the prey animals, they'll take off, they'll run. Uh, most predators will as well. Uh, it's very difficult to walk close to lions unless you surprise them. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, it's, you know, you belong there as well. That's, that's our. And I don't think you want to get in the business of surprising lions. Maybe I'm wrong, but I would <laughs> guess that's not a good business decision. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, fortunately I've, I've not been in that situation. Um, but that's part of the training too, is really, you know, how do you avoid those situations where you're yeah. going to be a tough spot? Um, you know, that's, that's really the goal of all of that is learning the behavior and patterns of these other animals so that you can view them safely for both you and the other animal. What's the most memorable experience that you've had? Do you think what's the one that comes to mind right away? Oh, well, <laughs> the one that comes to mind right away. Um, so this was actually while I was working, uh, at a game reserve, it was in the Waterberg mountains, which is, you know, a beautiful area in South Africa. Um, and I was driving, looking for tracks with another guy who was one of my friends, you know, we had, he's this big, you know, kind of strong, silent Dutch guy. Um, and so we were driving around just looking for some tracks kind of casually. This was in the very beginning when I first started, you know, just experimenting with track collection. And we came across this breeding herd of elephants. So there's probably, uh, between 30 and 40 females in the group. And I knew that the elephants are kind of touch and go in this area. So, you know, depending on where you are, the elephants, they react to people differently. And I knew in this area there, they could be a little bit nervous around vehicles. So I pulled to the side. Um, and I turn off the vehicle and I'm just watching this elephant herd They're, you know, uh, maybe about a hundred, 200 yards in front of us. And they don't really notice us yet. We're not really in their awareness. Um, and they seem calm. They're feeding. They're totally chill And this group starts harassing the females. So he starts, you know, trying to mount them and just chasing them everywhere. So the whole herd is now getting agitated and, you know, angry. And so, I'm starting to get a little bit nervous because also, you know, all the vehicles are stick shift and I was not that good at driving stick shift yet. So, uh, you know, I was not going to, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit nervous. And so I was kind of watching them and I'm talking to my friend, the other guy, and I'm saying, well, you know, what do you think they're, you know, they're starting to get a little bit agitated. This might not be the best position. What do you think? Like, should we wait it out or maybe we should pull out and reposition? Um, and he's like not answering me this whole time while I'm trying to get, you know, a second opinion. And finally I turned to him and I'm like, dude, like what, look at what's happening. What are you doing? And he's on his phone. I'm like, what could you possibly be looking at? We have this like oh. you know, the elephants right in front of us. They're freaking out. Um, and he just kind of like giggles and turns his phone to me and he's looking at like pictures of girls on his phone. So I'm like, dude, what are you doing? And so we kind of have this little argument. And in that time, the elephants realize that we're there. And the next thing I know, there's the matriarch is right in front of our vehicle. And she's staring us down, kind of trying to figure out what we are, what we're doing there. And so both of us just like, you know, kind of sit there still and calm. Um, that's, you know, the biggest thing in these encounters is just being calm, um, especially with elephants. I think they react a lot to your state emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so uh, apparently that worked because she decided, you know what, okay, these, these guys are okay. So she kind of goes around one side of the vehicle um, you know, close enough to where you could reach out and touch her. Um, and the second in line behind her goes around the other side. 
So then this entire herd comes towards our vehicle because they're following the matriarch and they part just in front of the vehicle. So you've got, you know, just lines of elephants on either side and each one, you know, they don't really see that we're there until they're right in front of us. So we get each elephant, this reaction to us, you know, kind of, you know, raising its head and not sure. And then, you know, decides to go around the vehicle. So it's like, you know, parting the Red Seas. Um, it was just absolutely incredible. Um, you know, wow. and your heart is pounding that whole time. And I think you just described JB's typical night out with his boys, you know, um, <laughs> really, you know, trying, trying to mount everything and like, you know, creating a big, uh, big, big, uh, <laughs> you know, turmoil with the females. Oh my that's, gosh. That's very familiar to John. Get out of here, Todd. I'm going back to Canada. I'm, I'm not talking to you the rest of the time. <laughs> that is seriously so majestic. I mean, elephants parting ways. I think so many of us dream about being by an elephant or near. You see people who go to Thailand or other reserves, look at be able to pet an elephant or be with one. Yep. To see in the wild and to see them come across in their natural format, one, terrifying. But I would also hope that your buddy at that point came to appreciate it. And I'm assuming he was in the moment then rather than back buried in his telephone. His telephone yeah. as if it's some sort of... His cellular device. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, he, he was also, I mean, that for both of us was just an incredible encounter. Because also at that point, you're, you're completely surrendered. You know, there's nothing that you can do in that situation. You're just surrendering to the elephants and having the experience. Um, yeah. So I think it's such a, a powerful impression for me. When you talk about surrendering to the experience and you are in nature where everything is ever changing, you're one with the dynamic of how the world is shifting. You are really doing the song and dance with mother nature. So different from the average 20 something year old right now, which oftentimes buried in social media, buried in their phone. What's next? What advice would you give to people knowing that you live a life that so often you are forced in a way, but also just naturally ingrained to being one with the world around you mm -hmm. to other people who may have not experienced that or haven't had that connection to nature? Well, yeah, I, I think that's a, a bigger topic, or I think that's a pretty big topic of, you know, really a question of how to reconnect with nature, um, you know, because I think, you know, from a, I guess, from a agricultural standpoint, you know, when we look at plants that are all in one group, like, let's say, rows of corn, um, you know, we call that a monoculture. And usually that's bad because the, basically, those plants that are in a monoculture they don't benefit from any of the other plants that normally would bring, you know, defenses or shade or, you know, climate control to that area. It's all one plant. So for example, if they are susceptible to one fungus or whatever, it wipes everything out. Um, and so in the natural world, monocultures are bad, but for people, we actually kind of live in a monoculture. You know, we live only around our same species or organisms that our species has manipulated to be with our species. Um, and so I, I think, you know, maybe that, that's getting a little bit abstract there. Um, no, no, I, I, you can, I mean, we can go wherever we, you want with this. I think there is some value in what you just said. Uh, I, you know, and I, I've, I've actually learned of this phrase since I, uh, since COVID started nature bathing. And I thought, what is this crunchy crap? Like, what do you mean by nature bathing, you know, or forest bathing or whatever you want to put, whatever word you want to put in front of it. Um, but then I started to, you know, to, to get outside more kind of as a function of not being able to be around other people. And I think there is something there. I think there's something very psychologically therapeutic about being in the middle of the woods by yourself or maybe with someone else. I know my, my wife and kids and I would go have done more hiking in the last two years than we ever had in our lives before this. 
And yeah. so I think there is something psychologically beneficial about getting out into nature. I think it's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, no, and, and you know, there's a lot of studies that have been done on patients that, you know, have windows that view the outside versus ones that don't. And when they are able to see and experience nature, they heal faster. Mm -hmm. you know, there's evidence that being barefoot in nature reduces inflammation in your body because you're, you're basically grounding the electrical currents that are inside. Yes. So, I mean, absolutely. There's, that's the thing that we forget is that, you know, you and me, we're also wild animals. That's yep. our natural habitat. Mm -hmm. Created this artificial cocoon. And so, right. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of ways to get back to nature, whether it's like you're saying, you know, taking a walk outside, um, actually observing animals. And I think plants is a big one. You know, most of us tend to look at plants as like just this innate kind of inanimate part of the landscape, but you know, they're alive. They're just moving yeah. at a lower pace. And so I think having actually encounters and interactions with plants can be really powerful. Oh, um, there, there's so much to learn from nature. And when you touch on grounding, there's actually 20 plus scientific papers written on grounding in terms of what it can do for jet lag. And the idea of grounding mm -hmm. is just going barefoot in the setting you're in. And so often when people experience a time zone difference, you feel groggy, but you ground the electrical current in a given place. So often it's done on the beach, but even if it's in grass or mud or even concrete for that matter, but just being barefoot in the earth that you're in really brings you to center. And I think so many people have experienced from a less scientific approach, but that peace of mind when you watch a sunset or you're out in yeah. nature and you see a starscape that just is vast across the sky and you think you can see the Milky Way. I mean, what an experience when people can relate with there but incorporating it in more of our day-to-day -day lives, I think is needed. Get away from the phone, get out into nature, like be one with what's around you because that's being in the present. That's living. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think it is, it is tough because our societies aren't built around that at the moment, but that's something that, you know, I would love to see changes, you know, having more green spaces in city, having more emphasis on being in nature. Cause I think it is really important for our psychology and just, you know, being a healthy, happy person. So you've committed yourself through your art to building awareness and support for conservation efforts. What do you want people to know who might be listening to this, who don't have a lot of knowledge of, you know, what's happening to our ecosystem and um, things that maybe you're concerned about that people should be aware of? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great question. So, I mean, really there are two or three big problems that are happening in the world right now when it comes to conservation. And that's, um, you know, a is habitat loss. Uh, B is climate change, the one that we hear a lot of and kind of mm -hmm. see pollution. Um, and there's, you know, there's a really good book. It's called Drawdown, which is basically, um, you know, it's a study on what solutions we have for uh, climate change right now. But anyway, they, they have this video where one of their scientists makes this comment that I think says it really nicely that, you know, in the last 50 years, our populations have doubled across the globe and our economy has grown like 5.5 times over. So we have twice as many people doing almost six times as many things. So the resource strain on that is absolutely enormous. You know, it's like 35 to 40% of our land space is just devoted to agriculture. Um, and so basically as we continue to grow and develop, we're not leaving enough space for uh, wildlife and for wilderness. You know, it's not just parks or places with hiking trails. You know, animals like, for example, tigers, they need tons of space where you're not having hikers and bikers and ATVs going through the, those areas. 
Um, and unfortunately, that's one of the big issues that we're having is we're just not creating enough space. Um, so in terms of conservation, those are kind of the big things that we're, we're faced with right now. Um, but it's also, you know, it's, it's a tremendous opportunity to um, create better, healthier civilizations as well. You know, I think a lot of people, they lose hope when it comes to conservation. It's like, I mean, I don't know if you guys have heard this climate fatigue. Yes. Hmm. Yeah, it's or climate anxiety, where basically you're so anxious about this that you can't think about it. Um, but I, I think there, there's definitely hope. We have a lot of solutions, but that's the thing also. Is it's not just one solution. It's a lot of little things that we change. But the good thing is, if we change them, it's actually also better for us. I mean, most of these solutions make our lives better. Um, like just, for example, a big one uh, is women's education. In some of these areas where, uh, you know, you have highly impoverished people where uh, there's a high infant mortality rate and they're having tons and tons of kids and using a lot of resources and being very difficult or very, being, being very hard on the land, um, implementing women's education fixes a lot of those things. You know, that's, that's one of the really key components to that. I'm learning just as we go through this conversation here, because <laughs> I, I find this fascinating. And I think that's one thing too often people feel helpless in the bigger picture because they think of climate change. It's clearly this vast global goal that we're working toward. Yeah. What can individuals do, especially those who may think, hey, it's a government problem or waiting for somebody else to fix it? What can an individual do to help contribute and be a part of the solution? Yeah, um, I, I think that's a really important thing to get out. Um, and for my research, I think one of the most important things people can do is actually just reduce the amount of red meat that they eat. Um, that's one of the biggest impacts you can make right away. And I think you know, in the past, there's been this all or nothing attitude where it's like these really angry vegetarians, like shaming people for eating meat. Mm -hmm. And I, right. you know, maybe their heart was in the right place, but that's, that was obviously the wrong approach because that makes people more steadfast. It doesn't have to be this all or nothing thing. Like a lot of people have, uh, you know, meat three times a day. So, you know, maybe just cut it back to one. Or if that doesn't bother you, you know, cut it out to maybe once or twice a week, you know, just kind of gauge how can I reduce for me, it doesn't bother me to really cut out red meat at all. I'm not vegetarian, but I don't eat a lot of red meat. And that doesn't bother me to cut it out. But if for some people, if that's a really big thing that they need, you know, reduce it to what you're comfortable to anything helps. And so it doesn't have to be this all or nothing thing. Um, you know, so is it is it because of the amount of resources, right, that it takes to raise animals that produce red meat? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so in ecology, there's this idea of trophic levels, right? Uh, which is basically how much energy it creates to, or how much energy it requires to feed an organism on each level of the food chain. So for, for beef, beef is one of the most inefficient animals that we eat, because I think the, the resource exchange is like, it takes six units of resources, which would be, you know, food and water for that animal to produce one resource or one unit of output. So that's a six to one, you know, conversion for beef. So for every six units of resources that we put into beef with us, you know, food and water, we get one unit of beef out of it. Hmm. Um, it's very, very inefficient. So if we have a world where 7 billion people are all eating red meat, that's, that's a, a huge resource drain on the land where something, even chicken is much better. It's about two to one, you know, the, the conversion for oh, chicken. Wow. Yeah. Huh. You were teaching me all sorts here. And I think, well, and I, I just, you know, I feel great because I had chicken wings tonight for dinner. So now I feel really good about myself. 
You're already doing something. You're just helping time. the world, Todd. You I am. One, one meal at a time. Yep. <laughs> right no, back to your work in the art space. Mm-hmm. I know you're coming off of your first trip over to Africa, and now you are getting ready for a second trip. What is next for you, and where are you headed? Yeah, so the next big trip is going to be to the Republic of Congo, um, which is a country in Central Africa. It's just to the west of the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there's actually two Congos. Um, So you're not going to the dangerous one, I hope. No, no. (laughs) No, Republic of Congo is, um, you know, significantly more stable uh, than DRC, but it's very similar ecosystems, but it's it's dense rainforest. So this is where I'll be looking for tracks from Western lowland gorillas, uh, forest elephant, forest buffalo, chimpanzee, uh, putty-nosed monkey, um, tons and tons of different, you know, jungle antelope. They've got, I, I don't know how many species of diker, which is, you know, a little kind of terrier sized antelope, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, a, it's basically the, the jungles from Tarzan is um, a good comparison. So do you have, aspirations to collect um tracks from different animals you kind of have like like i used to collect baseball cards as a kid are you collecting tracks is that is that one of your goals um yeah so that's kind of the i guess the long view of walks of life art is to do a painting series from uh every major ecosystem you know so the first one was the bushveld series second one will be congo maybe after that will be amazon and then borneo and then himalayas um, and basically showcase the wildlife in these ecosystems as a whole. Um, so yeah, absolutely. There's, there's definitely, you know, the big iconic species that I would love to get, you know, a polar bear track, a Siberian tiger track. Um, because then at that point, you know, I, I'd be able to do these global series where I could create a painting where it's, you know, wildcats from around the world and you can oh have a, gosh. yeah, a piece of art that has, you know, tracks of tigers from Russia and, you know, leopards from India and snow leopards from Nepal, jaguars from uh, Brazil. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the long term goal for all of this is to hit all of these major ecosystems and then start putting things together on kind of global paintings. What's it like to put your art out in the world? Um, you know, at, at first, it's, it's a little nerve wracking because um, obviously you put a lot of time and effort into it. Um, and you never know how people are going to react. But I I think a big piece of it is just realizing that, you know, your art is not for everyone and that's okay. And and that's Mm -hmm. always my approach to it is it's like, I don't need people to like it because there are people that do. There are people that really love and appreciate what I'm doing. um, And those are the people that I make it for. You know, if if you look at it and you say, Oh, that's, that's terrible. (laughs) The way that looks like that's totally fine. That's, that's a valid opinion. I don't make it for you. So that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> that's hmm. probably the way I think about my sense of humor. I don't, if you don't like it, I didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, gotta be I, tough Todd, to have very few people in the world I that know. are made for that sense of humor. Exactly, exactly <laughs> man. I have a very small target audience. No, there is such wisdom in that canon. There I mean, is. that's so much yep. of the letting go piece. So often we're too focused on what other people think of us and be able to do things for the reasons that you want to, knowing there is an audience for it and you have such a deeper level cause to it. It's amazing to see you pursuing your process and your passions by going out and creating walks of life and what it's going to do for the world from not only a human standpoint of artwork and the enjoyment there, but also the natural world and the conversation conservationist efforts you're putting toward it. So thank you for the work you're doing. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, likewise, Canon. we appreciate uh, very much having you on today. 
Uh, anybody who is interested, check out www.walksoflifeart.com, right? That's the URL. And then we'll link your bio to the description um, in the in the podcast. But anything else you want to mention in terms of what you're up to? Um, you know, I think those are the big pieces. I'm also, um, you know, putting together kind of a mini series of local wildlife in Arizona. Um, so it'll be things like mountain lion, black bear, jaguar. Awesome. Um, but no, I think we touched on on all the big stuff going on. Uh, you've lived an interesting life to this point. I'm excited to follow along what you continue to do. So again, thank you for sharing with us here today and the pursuers out here. It's been an honor having you on, Cannon. That's been an absolute privilege. Thank you, John. Thank you, Todd. I appreciate you having me. You bet, man. Finishing that episode and recording with Cannon, it just it's really unique to see people go after full-heartedly what they want to do, but not only what they want to do, he is so freaking passionate about his conservationist efforts, what he's doing in the art community. And I am so excited hearing him paint the picture of what the future could hold around different themes of different regions of the world and animal prints and what they can do. Oh, it's a really neat guy. Todd, I know this is one of your first times speaking with Canon. So what's all about for you? Yeah. You know, when you told me, Hey, I've got some animal artist that wants to be on the show. I thought, what? Like, how interesting is, is that going to be? And honestly, he blew my expectations out of the water like you said, in terms of his insights on life, the cool and novel art that he's created and the mission behind the art, it's just all three of those things came through loud and clear. And it was a really fun interview and very thought provoking for me. I'd say the one thing that I really latched onto, and I kind of made a joke during the interview about it, but, you know, he really is, um, you know, following his passion and following his gut in terms of where he's taking his life, both personally and professionally. You know, he had the, he had an opportunity to take what I would consider to be the easy road. He had really great experience working for a big corporation. He could easily moved into that company, just like I did when I was coming out of college, like you did, John, when you were coming out of college. And I'm not saying that that's the bad road at all. I think I was very passionate about what I was doing at the time. John, I know you're very passionate about what you're doing now, but it, it takes a tremendous amount of guts and courage for him to switch gears like that so early in his career and to follow his passion, follow his instincts. And I think about that often now. You know, having nine months of a break in my professional life, I've thought a lot about the idea of meaningful work and what does that mean? I've done a lot of reading, John, as you and I have talked about recently, about how do you define maybe not work-life balance, because that assumes that, you know, both your work and your personal life are kind of on the same level, which at times it's almost impossible to do that. It's more about work-life harmony. And can you have a balance between your professional and personal lives such that you have harmony in your life overall? And, you know, times you're going to have uh, more work demands than others. You're going to have more time for your personal life than others. But, you know, can you make sure you find the time? And I think what, uh, you know, what Canon convinced me of is that there, there is an opportunity to follow your gut and your passion, to be happy in your professional life and in your personal life. And that there is an opportunity to build a life that you are proud of, a passionate about, and that fulfills you. And so uh, I hope our pursuers have their own reflections on the interview. I thought it was incredibly interesting. And so glad that he wanted to be a part of it. Mm, that is beautifully put in that harmony piece. You had me sitting back just kind of in awe hearing you fired up about what he did <laughs> for your mindset. But also I know yeah. just your own time about thinking and you're such an sure. introspective guy yourself, especially over the past nine months. I know you've dug deep into your own psyche, your own what does life mean? What does work mean? How do these things balance? How do things play in together? So it's unique to have people on that we can dive into some of these internal thoughts we have amongst ourselves and bring it in out to light and share with the pursuers. So, well, you're absolutely right. And, and if no one else, if there were no pursuers out there, which we love you guys. So thank you all for being a part of it. But even John, <laughs> the three of us talking to Canon, 
would have been enough for me. You know, like it's just an awesome opportunity to reflect, to learn. Um, what a what an awesome, awesome interview, an awesome guy. Hope you keep on with us, pursuers. Thank you again for joining us on this episode. Hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, text, email if you have it, because we would love to make you more involved in this process and continue learning from you as well. We are out. <laughs>